This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from All In with Chris Hayes, The Jimmy Dore Show, Counterspin, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Young Turks, The David Pakman Show, The Tom Hartman Program, and Ideas from CBC Radio. A simmering constitutional crisis boiled over. The president forced to address calls for the head of the CIA to resign. This started back in March when Senator Dianne Feinstein came out with a blockbuster accusation. All right? She alleged the CIA had been spying on computers being used by staffers of the Senate Intelligence Committee, staffers working on a report on torture committed by the CIA under President George W. Bush. The CIA swatted away the allegations of snooping and in turn accused the Senate staffers of wrongdoing, alleging the staffers had taken unauthorized documents while conducting their investigation. CIA Director John Brennan, meanwhile, said that those alleging the CIA spied on the Senate would be proven wrong in the end. As far as the allegations of you know, CIA hacking into you know, Senate computers, nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, we wouldn't do that. I mean, that's... that's that's just beyond the, the, uh, you know, the scope of, of reason. Beyond the scope of reason. Nothing could be further from the truth. We would never do that. Guess what we found out yesterday? We found out the CIA was, in fact, spying on the Senate. The agency admitted that an internal probe found that CIA officers secretly monitored the Congressional Committee charged with supervising its activities. In case it's not clear, this is a very big deal. The Senate has oversight responsibility to make sure the CIA doesn't get out of control. And when the Senate tried to exercise said oversight, the CIA spied on them and tried to interfere with their investigation. Members of the Senate are livid about this. Yesterday, two Senate Democrats, Mark Udall and Martin Heinrich, called on Brennan to resign. These are members of the president's own party saying this. At President Obama's press conference today, Chuck Todd asked the president if he still stands by Brennan. The president backed his CIA chief. But he also, in a remarkable turn of phrase, acknowledged exactly what the CIA did under his predecessor. I have full confidence in John Brennan. Even before I came into office, uh, I was very clear that uh, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, uh, we did some things that were wrong. We did a whole lot of things that were right, but we tortured some folks. Well, it may not be legal, but it sure as heck makes me safer. And it may not yield useful intel, at least that's what they say. But it's a pleasure, so Let's go So President Barack Obama finally came out. Uh, I think what is this six, six, seven, seven years into his presidency? Six, yeah. Two years into or three years into his uh, second term, and he came out, what, 
He's exhausted from prosecuting them. Yes, yes. So Barack Obama didn't prosecute any of those war torture crimes. He never prosecuted anybody because Barack Obama said all those torture crimes happened in the past, and Barack Obama's looking towards the future. And when I heard that, I felt a lot better. You know why? Because all the crimes I've committed, they're in the past, too. Oh, I'm so glad we're not prosecuting past crimes anymore. I bet those people in prison are pissed off they committed their crimes in the future. No, Jimmy, Jimmy, when I was a young man in New York City, and I, would, uh, and I was drinking back then, and I would go out at night and murder prostitutes, I was immature back then. <laughs> also, when the cops would come arrest you, you'd be like, hey, 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 I did that yesterday. All right? yeah. Yeah. Barack Obama finally came out, said we're torturing people. He said we tortured people, and well, here's what he said. Can I play it for you? Here's what he said. Okay, ready? Sure. Even before I came into office, uh, I was very clear that uh, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, uh, we did some things that were wrong. We did a whole lot of things that were right, but we tortured some folks. I like, but he's going to put the little caveat in. We did a lot of things that were right, right? We did a lot of things that were right. Okay, it was all right. I, what, what, what did we do that was right? I don't remember that. I don't, <laughs> you got, I got me too. For, we started a, a gigantic war that cost us billions of dollars and killed thousands of innocent people. It's the wrong country. Where did we fit in something right in all that? <laughs> you got me, Frank. You got me, buddy. So here he goes on. I think he just didn't want us to feel bad. That's actually exactly right. It's exactly right. He doesn't want us to feel bad about the fact that we're just like the Nazis sometimes. Yeah, we did some things right. Sometimes. Come on. We did some things that were contrary to our values. Oh. I understand why it happened. Yeah, you understand why it happened? Because we had some criminal motherfuckers running our government. That's why. Because they invaded a country for oil around a pack of lies. That's why. And then they tortured people to make them give information that was false, that said the Al-Qaeda and Saddam Hussein was working together. You mean that's why you understand? I don't think that's what you mean, right? And they continue because that's why it happened. That is why it happened. It wasn't that they were trying to get information. They were torturing people to make them say that Al-Qaeda was working with Saddam Hussein when they weren't. That's why you torture people, not to get information, you torture people so they say stuff that isn't true that yeah. you want them to say. Jimmy, he said we did some things right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so here he goes. So here oh, he, he well, wait, he says like uh, you know, I, uh, what did he say? It's understandable, or uh, yeah, you understand why it happened. Understand when when in the wake of a crime does a policeman or does anyone say that? Well, this person was murdered. Look, I understand why it happened. <laughs> Yeah. I have to arrest the person anyway. I, you know, I mean, when does that nuance ever come into any kind of crime? And by the way, murder. Uh, you know, to me, it's like it's not a, a better analogy. Would be like rape because you know, torture is like this heinous, horrible thing that hasn't. And then you're doing it on, intentionally on purpose. It's like rape. So I, mean, I understand why the rape happened. That you would never say that. You would never say that. But he's saying I understand why torture happened. I understand why we turned into animals. That's what he's saying. Okay, let's go around. Uh, I, I think uh, it's important uh, when we look back to recall how afraid people were uh, after uh, the Twin Towers uh, fell and, and the Pentagon had been hit and the plane in Pennsylvania had fallen and people did not know whether more attacks were imminent uh, and there was enormous pressure uh, on our law enforcement and our national security teams to try to deal with this. Yeah, so if your job is really tough, 
uh, you get to commit war crimes. That's what he's saying. <laughs> Time so, to torture. Yeah, so, so if your job is really, that's really what he's saying. He's saying if your job is hard, um, you know, uh, and you, you just might, you just, maybe you need to relax a little with some torture. Right, so if you're stressed, so a lot of times what happens in war, people get stressed, and a way to release it, you torture some people. <laughs> so that is is that what he's saying? I think that's what he's saying. Okay, I, yeah, I, I I almost in a sense think it's worse than that because it's just like this complete abdication of leadership. Like, yeah, exactly. We were scared and we were terrified, right? And there was enormous pressure. That's why you so have values. That's why you have values, and that's why you have leadership and smart people making those critical decisions because right. they were admittedly hard decisions. And you're allowed to be wrong, but you're not really allowed to be immoral. Yeah, exactly. Right. Thank you, Ben. Great. But you know what? All those people in the mi Middle East are really bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, so he's got a little bit more to say. Uh, and... Um, yeah, you know, it, 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 it's important for us not to uh, feel too sanctimonious in retrospect about the tough job that those folks had. Yeah, that's exactly what you'd say to anyone responsible for heinous human crimes. You'd say, you know, in retrospect, don't give yourself such a hard time about it. <laughs> yeah, it, it, he sounds like my therapist. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, if you're afraid, you're under stress, torture relieves a lot of that pressure. Yeah. Is that what your therapist says? Why is he taught? What, what was the point of this? I don't, what did he think he was going to get out of this? Yeah, Can I answer that? I think he doesn't want the torturers to have their feelings hurt. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to hurt the torture. Good point, Steph. Instead of prosecuting, instead of prosecuting Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld, and Rice, for their crimes. Let's just hug it out with them. Yeah, let's hug it out. Exactly. <laughs> I like how he says, don't get sanctimonious. Yeah, because, you know, waterboarding is bad, but sanctimony oh, is really reprehensible. Oh, I mean, yeah. who hasn't waterboarded prisoners over 180 times, right? See, he who hasn't, <laughs> throw the first stone. That's you what know, I say. I would rather <laughs> have an electrode attached to my balls than have someone be sanctimonious to me. Oh. In a heartbeat. <laughs> Don't be see see the see only the sanctimonious hold war criminals accountable, Ben. Hmm. Remember how sanctimonious they were at Nuremberg? Ah, oh, <laughs> I mean they were so disgusting with the sanctimony I almost kvetched. <laughs> <laughs> they were so uh Mean-spirited towards verbals. <laughs> yes, they were. They were. They were mean to him, and they were sanctimonious. They were, it's. It's like well, there was. Uh, uh, you have to remember the circumstances in which uh, Nazism flourished, and in which the Holocaust happened. It was a very tense time for Germans. It was what? Tense time. Oh, it was a very tense time. I'm sorry. Why? Um. You know, legitimately, from a political point of view, what was the point of this statement? Like, did Barack Obama wake up this morning and a couple of advisors come in and they say, you know, you haven't seemed really weak in weeks. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, it's nearly uh, it's August 6th and you haven't seemed like a giant <laughs> pussy since June. <laughs> exactly. He, he said, uh, <laughs> he, he said we tortured some folks with the same casualness, but he'd say we bought a zoo. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he did. You know, Frank, and I'm glad that we don't hold ourselves to a higher standard or else we might have some sleepless nights about what we did. You know, other nations looking down their noses at us, thinking they're better than us just because they follow international law and don't torture prisoners held in jail for over a decade without a trial. You know what? 
They're just jealous. <laughs> <laughs> and sanctimonious. I'll tell you that, goddamn sanctimony. So there you go. That's his big... He Well, the reason why he came out and he had to talk about it, because there's that thing happening right now with the reports coming out, the CIA report on torture, and they redacted everything. Yeah. So what they did was, so the report is about who did torturing, who ordered torture, and where it happened, because it happened in foreign countries, didn't happen on our soil, and American agents acting in other countries. So that's important to know what countries it happened in, and it's important to know who did it and who ordered it. But what they did, what the CIA did, is they redacted, meaning they blacked out all the countries that were involved, all the people that were involved, even the names of the people who were tortured got blacked out. So basically... What, that document was more uh, had more black ops than Artie than Artie Lang. Am I right? <laughs> uh, the good news is is that report's going to make an excellent Mad Lib. <laughs> yes. Yes. So what? So what? They you're basically left with is a as a report with no nouns. So it's just a bunch of verbs strung yeah. together. Right. This uh, th this happened. Who did it? We don't know. Where it happened? I don't know. When it's all blacked out. But just verbs of things happening, but they're not connected to anything. And again, that's our own CIA. The people who help to protect us, they also need to not be able to be honest with us too. They're like another criminal organization trying to find other criminals. Maybe that, a re that, that that report was that report was so hard to read. I thought it was a Cormac McCarthy novel. <laughs> <laughs> maybe if there's going to be an investigation and a report on crimes committed by the CIA, maybe you don't let the CIA have a look at it first. Yeah, how about that? Yeah, how about that? Yeah. Oh, Obama's we can't, can't say that. Tone, you're supposed to deduce from his soothing tone that he's saying, "Don't worry, we're not going to prosecute anyone." Yes, it's exactly what he's saying. So if yeah, that hey, message has already been delivered. Yeah, that's yeah. clear. That's clear. What's another word for torture? That appears to be what Washington Post reporters asked themselves as they wrote a March 31st story. It was, in fact, a big scoop on the massive Senate Intelligence Committee investigation into the CIA's Bush-era torture program that found that the agency misled lawmakers and the public about the effectiveness of torture. But, as noticed by alert reader Alice Chan, the paper wouldn't call it that. Instead, readers got references to a brutal interrogation program, harsh techniques, excruciating interrogation methods, brutal measures, harsh interrogation techniques, coercive techniques, previously undisclosed cases of abuse, harsh treatment, and enhanced interrogation techniques. Of one prisoner, readers learned, quote, CIA interrogators forcibly kept his head under the water while he struggled to breathe and beat him repeatedly, hitting him with a truncheon-like object and smashing his head against a wall, close quote. Yet the only time the Post uttered the T-word was in reference to, quote, methods that Obama and others later labeled torture, close quote. Yes, there are also methods the U.S. media wouldn't hesitate to label torture, if they were happening in another country. Don't open your mouth.
President Obama's second full day in office, White House press aides almost forgot that he was supposed to ban torture. This was January 22nd in 2009. Obama had promised that in one of his first actions as president, he was going to ban torture. So he sat down that day with a stack of executive orders to sign. These were the first executive orders of his presidency. And the first one he put his pen on was the order to close Guantanamo. And when he signed that, well, the whole ceremony almost ended right there. There we go. And once that was cleared up, the president did sign his executive order banning torture. And later that same day, the second day of his presidency, he gave a speech at the State Department declaring the detention uh, practices of the George W. Bush era CIA were officially over. This morning, I signed three executive orders. First, I can say without exception or equivocation that the United States will not torture. So that's what Obama made clear at the very beginning of his presidency. The United States is not going to torture. But the fact remained back then, and it remains today, that the United States, and specifically the Central Intelligence Agency of the United States, had tortured. The CIA had tortured people in American custody. And so, pretty much from the moment President Obama signed that executive order banning torture, there's been a fight in this country about how to reckon with the fact that we did torture people. That fight hasn't been just another Democrat versus Republican battle, the kind we see on just about every issue in Washington. It has also been, it has maybe even more prominently been, between Democrats and Democrats. About a month after President Obama signed that executive order in 2009, the Senate Intelligence Committee, that's the committee in the Senate responsible for overseeing the CIA, that committee announced that they were going to investigate those torture allegations. They were going to launch a full and thorough review of the CIA interrogation and detention program. Beyond just figuring out what had happened in the past and why it had happened, the Senate Intelligence Committee was going to try to answer some more, uh, some more important and fundamental questions. Like, did torture work? Did it lead to valuable information, as the Bush administration insisted that it did? Did it stop any terrorism? So the Democrats in Congress were leading this effort to investigate what happened at the Bush CIA. From the very beginning, the Obama administration was not too keen on this idea. But Senate Democrats pressed ahead anyway. Their party's guy was in the White House. It was making him uncomfortable, but they pressed ahead despite that. Senate Intelligence Committee also vowed to make a version of their final report public, to declassify it and to make it a part of the public record so that everyone could see it. Senate Intelligence Committee began working on that report more than five years ago now. We have now found out that during this investigation, the CIA actually spied on Congress. It spied on Senate staffers who were working on that torture report. 
The CIA tried and failed to get those Senate staffers in legal trouble for working on that report. And after completely denying those allegations, after saying it was ludicrous to imagine the CIA would or could ever spy on Congress, CIA Director John Brennan finally had to acknowledge just last week that it did happen. And he also had to apologize for it. That was last week. And then this week, the next shoe was going to drop. That report, that report five years in the making, was going to be made public. Finally. But that hasn't happened this week. And it's because a new fight, another fight, has now broken out. And it's between Democrats in Congress and the Democratic White House. And it's about redactions. Rachel has talked a lot about redactions on this show, including a whole segment about redaction best practices. Anyone can redact a document, of course. If you want to make parts of a document public, but you want to keep parts of it secret, you redact it. You cross out the information by hand using a very heavy black marker, or you just cut out that information off the page altogether. Well, it turns out that before releasing its torture report, the Senate Intelligence Committee first had to run it by the CIA so the CIA could redact. They could keep classified any information that they say would be harmful to national security if it ever came out. Anything they think absolutely needs to remain classified. This was the final step before the report was going to be released to the public. And it's the step that we are stuck on right now. Because yesterday, Senator Dianne Feinstein of California, who's the chair of the Intelligence Committee, said the CIA has taken this report and over-redacted it. That it has abused its power to redact. That it is trying to keep too much secret. She said the redactions, quote, obscure key facts that support the report's findings and conclusions. Now, she's vowing not to release that final report until and unless the CIA and her committee can come up with some compromise. She's also sent a letter to the White House registering her complaints. Democratic Senator Carl Levin called the CIA's redactions totally unacceptable. Quote, the classification process should be used to protect sources and methods or the disclosure of information which could compromise national security, not to avoid disclosure or improper acts or embarrassing information. Colorado Senator Mark Udall, another Democrat on the Intelligence Committee, vowed today to hold President Obama to his promise to declassify the report. Quote, the CIA should, uh, should not face its past with a redaction pen, and the White House must not allow it to do so. The White House, for its part, defended the redactions this week from that Democratic criticism. There was a good faith effort that was made uh, by the administration and by national security professionals to evaluate this information uh, and to make redactions that are consistent with the need to protect national security, but also consistent with the president's clearly stated desire to be as transparent as possible uh, about this. The president has said that we tortured some folks. He's also said that part of our national reckoning with that history is to make that history as transparent as possible in the hopes that putting it on the public record will help ensure that it never happens again. This report from the Senate Intelligence Committee has been underway for five and a half years now. This new fight over those redactions means that the public record will just have to wait at least for a little longer.
The New York Times has released an editorial laying out the fact that they will now refer to enhanced interrogation techniques as torture when they believe that they're actually torture. Now, uh, for a very long time, as uh, revelations about what the CIA has gotten up to in black sites and even close to home in terms of how they get information from suspects have come out, this entire time they have refused to use the word torture. We're going to read a little bit uh, from that editorial explaining why they decided to make this shift. They said, when the first revelations emerged a decade ago, the situation was murky. The details about what the CIA did in its interrogation rooms were vague. The word torture had a specialized legal meaning as well as a plain English one. Uh, the Times described what we knew of the program but avoided a label that was still in dispute, instead using terms like harsh or brutal interrogation methods. Uh, but they go on that to say that they now believe that they can move past that. It's pretty clear what has been going on now that we have much more information being released by the CIA. Uh, so from now on, the Times will use the word torture to describe incidents in which we know for sure that interrogators inflicted pain on a prisoner in an effort to get information. And we know that that has been the case many, many times sometimes hundreds of times with the same uh, prisoner or suspect. I mean, what a freaking embarrassment for the paper or record of the United States of America. It's a shameful day, and that's a shameful editorial. And Dean, I can't remember, Baquet, is that how we say it? I think Baquet. I think it's Baquet. Um, but it, he, uh, it's funny, I knew how to pronounce his name when he got the job a month ago, and <laughs> two months ago, I've completely <laughs> forgotten. Um, like, you know, every other news organization figured this out. You got uh, handled uh, by the Bush administration prior to the war, played an enormous role in this complete mayhem that is now happening. I mean, like, the, yeah, the, you know, we as the United States bear responsibility for the Yazidis on that mountain for creating this in predictable and impossible dynamic. And you guys got played. You should have some sense that you were played. And they sort of continued to get played because it was so offensive to them that they got played, that they were so careful each and every step of the way. Do your job. Report. You failed. It was a giant failure. It's one of the biggest failures of serious American journalism in my lifetime. And 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 maybe ever, or certainly in the last 50 years, that we have dropped the ball like this. And now, what do you want, a pat on the back? You don't get a pat on the back. Nobody should read you. Everyone associated with it, who really was associated with it, should have lost their jobs. I don't know it's, if I would call this the biggest failure of American journalism in our lifetime, but I think that the reason... What's bigger? I think the reason that it feels that way is because there was a certain amount of, of trust that was placed into this paper that was beyond anything that we see wow. in... I mean, in general, the the, the journalism failure in the run-up post 9/11 is the biggest failure, and and I I think that's going to be tough to beat. Yeah, I mean, perhaps. And the New York Times, because the New York Times played a critical role in that failure, maybe the leading role, certainly. That definitely was. I'm not sure if calling torture, not calling torture, torture. No, no, no. I mean, I mean, I'm I'm doing the whole thing that you were. At the very least, what should be here is, man, here's a you know the editorial we're going to write. Here are the amazing things that we did wrong. Yeah. And one of them was. And that's not going to happen. I mean, it's not going to happen at all. You could almost sort of forgive them, I guess, if, if. After 9-11, we had devised totally brand new interrogation techniques that had never been used before. And so it wasn't clear historically if they should be called torture or not. 
But the exact techniques that the CIA used, these are things that when they had been used against U.S. forces in previous conflicts around the world, we called them torture. We tried and, uh, and pr imprisoned people for using those techniques in war. And then suddenly when we wanted to use them, when we thought it would generate actionable intelligence, it was suddenly not torture anymore. The, the New York, I understand why the administration might be willing to ignore history in that way, but the Times should not have. They yeah. knew what it was back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and they should have reported well, on this that. this just harkens to, um, to any place where there is no free press. I mean, that's what this feels yeah. like. This feels like a state-run newspaper at this point. When they're going to wait until the president himself mm -hmm. makes a comment before they look at that as if it's truth, there is no reporting it's, being done there. And a giant Senate intelligence report. Yeah, exactly. It's 2014. Exactly. And, yeah. the, and, and, he, and, and is this the Vox piece that we have here says that Baquet still won't admit the paper made a mistake by denying the obvious. Like, mm -hmm. yeah. Like you, you goofed it. You, by the way, it's not even on you. You weren't even there. So, yeah. so you. Had I mean, a that's freebie. just such like an American thing to do. It's just to, like no apologies. Just move forward. Yeah. And but then it's like, wh how are we supposed to trust you as a legitimate source for news after this? You know who called it torture? McClatchy. And they hammered the New York Times day after day after day after day mm. after day, month after month after month, year after year. McClatchy did a terrific job in covering it, and there's still some great journalism in America. In this case, the saying of better late than never does not apply, because the whole problem with this is twofold. One is, as all these guys have pointed out, uh, we expect better from the New York Times. Yeah. Television was a disaster, right? Everybody was cheerleading, literally waving the American flag and all, all their graphics, but we expect TV to be fairly dumb, right? And we expect them to bow their heads with part of the huge conglomerates that they are. At the time, NBC is uh, owned by GE, which is a defense contractor, and, and it goes on and on and on. The New York Times is supposed to be better than this. and But instead, what we have here is them saying it once it becomes safe to say it. Be mm -hmm. and, and John is right. There is a legal and technical definition of torture. And we know that it met it because we prosecuted people for this same exact crime and yeah. called it torture before. So it was not in dispute. The only reason it was in dispute is because they started playing the he said, she said games. Republicans say this yeah. and Democrats, of course, say nothing, right? And so the New York Times got scared and they did what the government wanted them to do, which is Kara's point. And that's the biggest crime of all here. And it goes to Ben's point about context. What do they do? They put Judy Miller's nonsense on page A1, headline after headline, weapons of mass destruction, oh my god, they're coming, mushroom clouds, etc. By the way, they had some decent articles that were buried, and I remember yeah. Ben and I covered it when, as it was happening in page A17 and A27 about, you know, are those tubes really four weapons? And maybe it turns out, no, not really, right? Let alone the fact that they did not put headline after headline saying that Saddam did not attack us on 9-11 as 70% of the country thought. 7 out of 10 people when we invaded Iraq thought that Saddam had personally done 9-11. If you're the paper record and you were part of that great misinformation tactic, then at least you had the obligation to call what we did afterwards torture when it was clearly torture. But you didn't because you were scared and you bowed your head to the government. So now that it's safe and the president has finally called it torture and there's a giant CIA a, a report in the Senate Intelligence Committee about CIA saying it did not help, it did not work and it was torture. 
finally, after the government sanctions it, you turn around and say, oh, okay, it was torture. Well, it's not better late than never. No, it's bullshit. And and what I think a lot of people don't understand is the New York Times in this situation, historically, is the rate-limiting step. This is a paper, like you said, it's the paper of record. It's the beginning of the funnel. It's the primary source material. And so much reporting comes out of that. They directly influence what is in the heads of the American public. And that's why this is so gross. Every news network reads and it starts the day by reading the New York Times, or during that era, they read Drudge. Um, <laughs> it's not even. It's not even. It's not even a joke. Yeah, right, they well, did. that's yeah. the sad part. Yeah. He, he didn't refer to his torture either. Um, so yeah, I mean, what a giant pussy. Them, the paper, like what? You can't even. It's 2014, and the legal definition, by the way, that's for lawyers. Journalists yeah. don't have to follow that no. definition. Other journalists got around that definition because they knew what torture was, and you could have said what appears to be torture if it was so difficult for you. There's a lot of ways around that. And uh, and they didn't, and they were afraid. And as Cenk said, and when as soon as you said, Cenk, who do you think I thought of when you said when it was convenient? Mm-hmm. Now they're coming out against it. And then instantly I thought of who? Because that is a phrase that we used all the time for Hillary. I mean, who made the most, whose turn against the Iraq war was like, you know, was like Chris Matthews, was when it was way, Wait, wait. Okay, it's the safest thing in the world now. I mean, uh, she had a chance. Like, was, the, like by the way, another instance where it was not better late than never. No, not better late <laughs> than ever because she, like the New York Times, had an opportunity to lead and chose not to. Well, they, and, and it supposed to be the presence. Cost of the presidency. There's supposed to be, the yeah. supposed to be integrity when it comes to the free press. We don't expect integ- integrity anymore when it comes to our politicians, and we understand that our politicians don't answer to the American people anymore. They answer to big business and corporate interests and all of the lobbyists that are lining their pockets. But the press doesn't. The only thing the press is supposed to answer to is the truth for the people. That is the whole point of having a free press in this country. And it was this one bastion that was left of like, okay, I'm not going to be cynical about this. And thanks, thanks New York Times. (laughs) That's what you did. You made us all fucking cynical. Five years ago this week, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia argued that cruel and unusual punishment does not apply to waterboarding since an interrogation is not a punishment, it is an attempt to obtain information. This was just months after President Obama signed an executive order uh, that required both the U.S. as well as paramilitary organizations to use the Army Field Manual as a guide on getting information from prisoners, which moved away from the Bush administration tactics, whatever that meant at the time. And this essentially banned waterboarding, but who knows what's happening at the black sites. We now, in addition to black sites and waterboarding, the last five years have seen the popularization, it's crazy to even use that term, the popularization of drone warfare. Do you think, Lewis, that we now have, looking back to five years ago and considering drones, waterboarding, so-called enhanced interrogation techniques, black sites. Do we have more openness, clarity, and adherence to the law on uh, treatment of prisoners and so-called combatants, or are we in even worse shape than five years ago, human rights-wise? 
Yeah, it's hard to say because we moved from one kind of fuzzy gray area, that being torture, interrogation, enhanced interrogation, and we moved into drones and, uh, you know, this uh, kind of, I don't know, um, how would you describe drone warfare? I just detached. I mean, it's certainly detached. And we've talked yeah. about when it comes to drone warfare that nobody thinks or suggests that we would be doing nothing if we weren't droning. We might be doing things which could lead to even more civilian casualties, uh, but that doesn't really change the reality of it. Also, back in 2010, after leaving office, George W. Bush spoke at the Economic Club of Grand Rapids, Michigan, and he said, yeah, we waterboarded Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. I do it again to save lives. And there are many people who believe that, generally speaking, waterboarding and so-called enhanced interrogation techniques do save lives, although most of the evidence I've read suggests that these techniques will just get detainees to tell you what they think you want to hear to make the interrogation stop. Jan in Chicago. Hey, Jan, thanks for listening to WCPT. What's up? Hey, Tom. Oh, I'm, it's a privilege to talk with you. Um, I know that you are probably aware of this, but a lot of people probably aren't. I wasn't. I was listening to public radio about a week or so ago, and there was a whole program on <clears throat> how the United States uh, treated the prisoners of war that... Um, uh, you know, the military prisoners that we brought here from Germany after World War II. And it went into great depth about how they were um, used on farms to do farm work and how some of the people that owned the farms actually at Christmas time invited them into the house to, um, you know, celebrate Christmas with them. And it also went into depth about how they had to actually separate some of the prisoners because some of them were real, you know, gung-ho Nazi, um, you know, Gestapo type, and they would really beat up the other prisoners that were, uh, you know, kind of trying right. to see the a new way, you know, the American right. way. Anyway, getting to the with and Gitmo people, uh, the horrific treatment of those people. How can we ever convert anybody's, you know? Um, no, I, I I absolutely agree with you, Jan. And in fact, not only did we treat our prisoners of war well during World War II, and we were rather famous for doing it. We did it during the Revolutionary War. And here, in fact, is a clip of then-Senator Hillary Clinton arguing that we should not be running secret prisons and detention facilities and torture facilities around the world because it's simply not the American way. Listen to this. When General Washington led his soldiers across the Delaware River and onto victory in the Battle of Trenton, he captured nearly 1,000 foreign mercenaries and he faced a crucial choice. How would General Washington treat these prisoners? The British had already committed atrocities against Americans, including torture. As David Hackett Fisher described in his Pulitzer Prize winning book, Washington's Crossing, thousands of American prisoners of war were treated with extreme cruelty by British captors. 
There are accounts of injured soldiers who surrendered being murdered instead of quartered. Countless Americans dying in prison hulks in New York Harbor. Starvation and other acts of inhumanity perpetrated against Americans confined to churches in New York City. Well, you can imagine the light of our ideals shone dimly in those early dark days, years from an end to the conflict, years before our improbable triumph and the birth of our democracy. General Washington announced a decision unique in human history, sending the following order for handling prisoners. Treat them with humanity and let them have no reason to complain of our copying the brutal example of the British Army in their treatment of our unfortunate brethren. George Washington understood that how you treat enemy combatants can reverberate around the world. We must convict and punish the guilty in a way that reinforces their guilt before the world and does not undermine our value. There you go. And that was, I mean, that was back when Bush was president and she was a senator and she was pushing back on, you know, let, let's not even establish this insane system. And uh, so, uh, Jan, uh, that, you know, there's a long tradition. Oh, wow. That's impressive. Well, I would kind of suggest to anyone who isn't aware of, uh, you know, this situation, how we treated the prisoners after World War II, if they uh, get plugged in somehow to WNUR, uh, you know, National Public, NPR, National Public Radio, there was yeah. like a whole hour program, and I was astonished. But We have, light, we have always, know. not always, but we have usually done that. In fact, Lincoln uh, had similar orders for the Union soldiers' treatment of Confederate soldiers. There, you know, this this precedent that George Washington established, with the single exception of the Bush administration, has and and I mean, you could argue the the internment of the Japanese, but uh, you know, it it has always been a part, if not the front and center of of uh, you know American standards. People have been torturing their fellow humans since the beginning of time, but it's only fairly recently that we turned against it. The German priest Anton Praetorius in the late 1500s protested strenuously against torture, but it was only with the coming of ideas about human rights that things began to change. Today we still torture, as we learned from Abu Ghraib, and states look for ever more refined legal arguments to defend extreme interrogation. This program is called Unspeakable Acts, and it's presented by Philip Coulter. Torture in modern times took a giant leap forward during the years of the so-called Troubles in Northern Ireland in the 1960s and later. By 1971, the British government, fed up with the seemingly intractable problem of IRA violence, declared a policy of internment. Anyone could be arrested and held indefinitely without charge. 
At the same time, the British Army was anxious to experiment with new, more sophisticated interrogation techniques. And so, on the night of August the ninth, nineteen seventy-one, three hundred and forty-two men were arrested in a series of raids across Northern Ireland. Of the three hundred and forty-two arrested on that night in Belfast, Jim Ald was one of fourteen subjected to the five techniques: hooding, white noise, food and water deprivation, sleep deprivation, and forced standing. Designed by the best lawyers and psychologists to be both legal and also tremendously effective in creating a kind of invisible, hopefully temporary psychosis. In describing what happened to him, Jim Old talks about how the pain of his torture took over his world, how it became the only thing in the world. In the words of Elaine Scarry, his world became unmade. There was a, a hissing sound in the background. Like uh, uh, the the sound of a, an, an old television where the programs had been turned off, or a, a badly tuned radio, uh, that sort of hissing loud, that hissing continue high pitched hissing sound. And I I remember the the first time I noticed it, and I was saying, what is that noise? That's annoying. And from that point on, it it appeared to, to get louder and louder. And louder until it, it just invaded your head all day, every day, non-stop, non-stop. It was just there. I was. I remember. I was trying to um, do um, addition tables. I was trying to spell words. I was trying multiplication tables. Anything at all that I could think of uh, in order to, to allow me to try and concentrate. And I and I couldn't do that. I just I just couldn't do it. And after about four days and nights of that, it comes a time when when your body can't take any more, and it and it just it just collapses. It's just you're just a heap, and you just collapse onto the floor. And after a while, believe it or not, the beatings were quite good because the beatings they were giving you brought the circulation around. It started, you know, the circulation started flowing through your body, and the numbness and the pins and needles in your arms and legs、um, lessened. Are, are and, you saying to me that you、blood. started then to look forward to the beatings? Oh yeah, oh god, yeah, because that brought the that brought the circulation around, because the pain of your, of your, just your, your the circulation not being able to move, that oh, it's a dreadful, dreadful pain whenever it goes on for so long, and and the beatings at that stage. You could hardly feel them because your body becomes that immune to it. That it, it feels like、uh, when they were beating you with wooden battens, it felt like ru- a rubber hose. You know, it was that sort of soft feeling. And you, at that stage, you, you, you get used to it. And I, I didn't, I didn't particularly, well, I didn't particularly like it, but、uh, wasn't an awful lot I could do about it. Was there a time though when you concluded that? You needed to start talking. You needed to start saying something to these people. Well, again, that's the that that's the whole process. If you're prepared to talk to them and tell them things, then you can stay off the wall. And I did. I told them anything at all. So they wanted to hear names. Everybody that had ever been in, been to school with, everybody that had ever worked with, everybody that ever that had ever played football with, they were all top IRA men to me. Because that capped me off the wall. So you just started listing old schoolmates and saying they're in the IRA, or I played、yep. football with this fellow and he's and in the IRA. Anything, every anything at all. 
anything at all to keep me out of that room, to keep me away from that noise. And was there a part of your brain at the time going, I'll, like, I'll make this up to my, to my friends later on, or I, I need you to no, try and help well, me understand not so much the, the fact that you were trying to avoid the pain and the beatings and the walls, but, but what the consequences of this might be, or, or did you have even the capacity to think about that? No, I didn't care. All I, all I wanted was all I wanted was out of that room for the pain to stop and to be left alone. And if, you, if I'd have known your name at the, at the time, I can assure you, you'd have been an IRA man too. Was this what finally led them to let you go then? That was only the that was only part of it. What happened after that was, I started I started hallucinating, um, and I don't know whether there was drugs in the water or whether it was how far my head had gone, and and I was convinced at that stage that they were they they had to kill me. Because the disgrace and the shame that they would face had they had it got out that this is what they had done to one of their own citizens would have brought the government down. And uh, rather than it go on and them eventually kill me, I tried to kill myself. When I, the building that I was in was a, was clearly it was an old building. There was a two three inch pipe. Um, ran along the bottom of the wall. I had fallen on it so many times I knew it intimately. But at that stage, I decided that if I could throw myself down onto this pipe, I could maybe break my neck and kill myself. And I tried. I threw myself down onto, the, onto this pipe, and I cracked my head okay, but I cried because I didn't die. Because I thought that that was the only way that I was getting out of that. But they didn't kill you, they did let you go. Well, they took two days to bring me back to normality. They brought me into, they brought me eventually off the wall into a room where there was a mattress on the floor. And they left me there. And then there was a, there was a, a plain clothes cop came in and he massaged my hands and my arms and my back to try and get the circulation going. He fed me soup um, to try and uh, build me up. And he washed me. He washed me from head to toe because I, I couldn't my hands. I couldn't lift my hands to wash myself. I was just I was just a blubbering wreck in the corner crying. And he as he washed me and he he dressed me. I thought he was God. And when you see the kinds of techniques that are used at these prisons that are being used today, do you see a direct link? To what you went through? Exactly the same links. I, it's, there's the softening up process. That's the, the, the same techniques of isolation, of depriving them of their senses, of making them feeling that they have nothing worth living for. And clearly that's, uh, that's what was happening. What's happening in America is the follow-on uh, from that. Jim, you tell the story of that experience in the prison today with such chilling clarity. I'm wondering, w were you always able to tell the story? Oh God, no. When, when, I, came, when I came out of prison at that stage, I, I, just went, I just went wild. I just went mad. I went uh, uh, drinking. I was on, seriously on drink for about uh, 10 years, and it took me that time to come to my senses. But I was, I was out of control for about 10 years. I had to leave Ireland, uh, the, uh, the north of Ireland. I moved, I moved away from home, away from everybody. 
until I could I could uh, sleep at night, until I could have a sleep without crying, where where I could face up to the people whose names I had given to the police, and I know some of them were arrested and beaten as well, uh, and that was all down to me. And, um, and and how long did that period of recovery take? About ten years. It, it's it's I, I can I can tell you now the the water is running down the side of my head now. I haven't told it. That was regular happening to me. I I, I when I told the story to anybody um, for weeks after it, I would have nightmares. Um, I would have night terrors. I would waken up. I would and early on, if I told the story, I went on the drink for another for for three or four weeks before I could get myself settled down. And it's it's it's, it's only this past lot of years that I've been able to um, tell it without it having any serious effect. Although when I listen to you tell the story, still I hear a catch in your voice when you're describing what they were doing to you. What what I can't understand is how one human being could do that to another. It just it, it just appalls me that. And what frightens me even more is that people in government who are supposed to be looking after our welfare can do that to other human beings and say that they're doing it on behalf of me. I'm just looking at this list of things that they did to you, Jim. Hooding, the wall standing, the noise, the sleep deprivation, the taking away food. How did the torture that you went through change you? I, I supported and supported wholly the IRA's campaign against uh, Britain. I will support the IRA's campaign against Britain forever. Sympathetic to their use of violence? Very much so. Did you ever take part in any of it yourself? No, I didn't, and that's because I'm a card. Um, had I had more courage, I would have. You said you were a coward. So, yeah, but for the for the volunteers, the men and women of the IRA, I have the utmost respect. So then the torture, in fact, turned you into what they were accusing you of in the first place. Very much so. So here we are now, 35 years later, looking at the same kind of uh, treatment, the same kind of torture unfolding in, in different countries, at different places, with different countries involved. Tell me what goes through your mind when you... You see the pictures from Abu Ghraib, you hear the stories from Guantanamo Bay, and, and, and you hear the explanations coming from the American authorities who are rationalizing that. I, I just see it as a pack of lies. Just a pack of lies. I, I, I just think it's appalling. It, it, there's something drastically wrong when a democracy has to uh, torture and kill people for their own good. I'm not going to try and carry the water for the people who make these kinds of decisions, but I'm thinking of the, the, the time in the early 70s when there was a belief in London that, that the IRA was such a dangerous group of people that any tactic was justifiable. And I'm thinking of, of 9-11 and the, and the belief that exists in this country that if, unless something is done to stop the terrorist, then the country is at risk. And the something, even if it means torture, might be good for the nation, the world, in, in the long run. No, I, I think that that's seriously a flawed way of looking at things. The IRA were a small group in Ireland in 1971. The prison that I went into, there were initially 342 people 
of those there might have been about 50, 40, 50 of them IRA. By 1975, there were thousands of IRA men and women, all of them willing to take up arms and explosives to kill um, British soldiers. And 9-11 was an appalling act of savagery, an appalling act of savagery. But I think that it is, it is incremental. If they were prepared to do that then, the new recruits into those organisations who have been through Guantanamo Bay and those other torture chambers, what are they going to be prepared to do? I have absolutely no doubt that it, it is creating a monster that neither, neither America nor anywhere else will be able to control. Hi, Jay. This is Sally from San Francisco. We need to look at the events in Ferguson, white privilege, and the issue of mistrust between races by exploring the role of punishment in controlling groups of people and how that exacerbates racial tension. In schools, when students are in classes with adults of another race who they don't automatically trust, black students in a class taught by a white teacher, for instance, a punishment approach to solving problems, for example, teachers seeking compliance, that does not take into account the other person's perspective does not help build any kind of alliance. If teachers assume instead that disobedience is a result of legitimate conflicting interests or at worst poor skills that need support and often explicit training, in order to resolve conflicts it's necessary to communicate to discover exactly what lies beneath the conflict and to come up with a plan to solve problems. Sometimes skills deficits cause kids to struggle with compliance. Sometimes teachers don't know the whole story and students have legitimate concerns. Sometimes teachers are wrong. In a hierarchical setting where one group has power and the other doesn't, for example, teachers versus students, guards versus prisoners, punishment makes it almost impossible to solve problems when both sides of a conflict have legitimate concerns. Punishment assumes that disobedience is willful and deliberate and as such is within the power of the person not complying to behave differently. Punishment also assumes that only one side is right. In communities where mistrust issues are deep, punishment only confirms the worst assumptions that those from dissimilar backgrounds make about each other. It isn't just about white privilege or communities lacking resources, though all of that may be true as well, but also because we're using the least effective tool punishment when what we really need and want is communication and problem solving that leads to lasting change. The only thing punishment does from school suspension to prison is remove a problem from view, except in extreme cases this is rarely the most effective approach and has the added effect of exacerbating racial biases and pre-existing mistrust. Thanks for the show. Bye. Hey, Jay, it's Wade again. I know you haven't done a show on this yet, but I just want to throw this out there. I've been hearing the term militarized police like every day uh, in the news with what's going on in Ferguson and, and uh, 
I got to say that I get why we have that term, but the military would not handle protesters that way. Uh, when I was in the Marine Corps, I was, I was, you know, had to hold the line on several protests in Baghdad and Japan, and uh, we never fired tear gas at anybody. I don't even know what a tear gas canister looks like. You know, we may have had rifles in Baghdad, but we never pointed them at anybody. In fact, the commander on the scene was, was specifically told us, do not unsling your rifles. That's just going to provoke people even more. It seems pretty common sense to me. Um, I think this is an issue right, left, and center that, that we're actually united on, which is amazing in this country. And the police are out of control. They're crazy. They have more gear on than I did when I invaded Iraq, for God's sakes. Uh, it, it's absolutely crazy out there. The police are supposed to de-escalate situations, but instead, and you can see this all over YouTube, if you just go look, it's the police are escalating the situation. Take Eric Gardner, for instance. Eric Garner may have been resisting arrest, and I say may have been resisting arrest, but the police are the one, the ones that escalated the situation. He never made a move to threaten them. Clear as day, it's, it's on video. The police need to be held accountable when they're, when they're the ones that are, that are causing the situation to go to an unnecessary level. And they're not holding themselves accountable. Not only are they making these horrendous mistakes, and not being charged with a crime. In most cases, they're not even losing their job. You know, if anybody else was to make a critical mistake like that in their job, they'd be fired. Why are they protected? Why are they not held to, the, to even the slightest degree accountable? It's, it's pathetic to me, and um, it's really frustrating. You know, watching the protests in Ferguson, why are the cops wearing camouflage? I can't even tell they're cops. Like, if one came up to me, I wouldn't know that he was an officer anymore. Well, what, what are the, what's the point of the camouflage, guys? I, I'd like to, you know, hear your reasonings as to why y'all decided to change into that. Now, all this presents a message of us versus them. You can't train like you're in the Marine Corps to go police. I was a trained Marine, infantry Marine. My job was to be brutal. I don't make a good policeman. You shouldn't train policemen like you trained me. It's, that's not the, the, the way it should, should go. Yet that seems to be the way they are going. They're, they're using SWAT teams when they can simply knock on the door. I mean, they're throwing flashbang grenades in houses where kids are sleeping. Uh, and, and that's traumatizing, not alone, let alone dangerous. That's an explosive device. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the police have gone crazy, and I do believe we're united on this. And I just want to throw that out there. I know the show's probably coming up on it. Um, but as a conservative or a liberal, we still have to debate of what I am. Um, I think we're all united on this, and this is something we need to push on. This is a, this is a change that needs to be needs to happen in America. We got to go back to mili- uh, excuse me to community policing and not militarized policing. And cops need to start looking like cops again. Ditch the flak jackets, ditch the damn helmets, ditch the AR-15s. Y'all don't need that crap. Okay, y'all need to look like cops. I'm, I'm sick and tired of seeing that. Uh, I want y'all to see, I want uniforms and, and badges so I can recognize a cop when he's walking down the street. And that's all I had, Jack. Thank you.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klubusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And yes, Wade is definitely right that there is an episode about police militarization in the works, and it just so happens I can give you a sneak peek of it because... You know, I don't usually listen to a whole lot uh, of programming on days that I make shows, but, you know, I had to get lunch at some point, so as I was making myself lunch today, I was listening to the newest uh, Le Show from uh, Harry Shearer, and he was talking about just this issue in just this context, uh, and it's just from yesterday, and it's it's short and sweet, so I thought I'd play it for you. Ladies and gentlemen, the... Uh Big story of the week, of course, Ferguson, Missouri, Missouri, and the site of uh, militarized-looking police on the streets in the wake of the killing of an unarmed young African-American man. Uh, I don't think a lot of the coverage has given due emphasis to the reason why local communities have military vehicles, military weapons, military kit, as the Brits say, military outfits these days. They get them at bargain basement prices from the Department of Defense thanks to uh, a program called the 1033 program. I think the Washington Post was the first this week to report it. And the Washington Post was among the few that I've seen that pointed out with some strength that the rationale for sending military equipment to local police forces was the war on drugs. So when you saw Ferguson police this week, you were looking at your brain on the war on drugs. Now, what this reminds me of, of course, is just how unbelievably interconnected all of the issues I try to cover are. You know, it's the one thing about the format of this show that I think sort of breaks down. You know, people... I think appreciate the format of the show and I like it the way it is, but the one thing it really doesn't do as well as I wish it did was highlight the intersections between all of the issues that we cover. And so this, you know, police militarization obviously flows into things like the drug war. Uh, What Harry didn't mention just there is obviously like one of the reasons why we have military surplus is because we go to too many wars. So there's that. Uh, how the uh, the local police forces end up reacting obviously plays into you know race issues and so on and so on and so on. So yes, the one thing I do think is hopeful about the whole over militarization of the police problem is that amazingly people seem to be fairly united on that issue. They they pretty much don't like it across the board, which means there's actually hope that something might get done about it. Now, just quickly before I go, a reminder that we are on a campaign to get five-star reviews in both iTunes and Stitcher. We're looking for a grand total of 3,000 reviews in iTunes. Uh, We're we're past the 2,000 mark, so less than 1,000 to go. Uh, so please help us get that you know last 900 reviews, something like that, and a total of 300 Stitcher reviews. We have less than 200 to go in that realm. The timing is why this is so important, uh, trying to get elevated up in those 
directories because the timing of you know trying to get ourselves visible at this moment is is particularly impactful we can't do it without you so please just take a few seconds out of your day leave a couple of five-star reviews in itunes and stitcher and it'll be very very much appreciated but that's going to be it for today thanks to everyone for listening thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations as that's absolutely how the program survives of course everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and as i've been saying leaving glowing reviews in itunes and stitcher and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash best of a left stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on facebook and twitter and for details on the show itself including links to all of the sources and music music used in this and every episode all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog so coming to you from inside the beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of washington dc my name is jay and this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you every third day thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com and it's a crying shame how we get so trained